Why did God create man before woman? To get it right the second time. Because <laughs> he didn't want any advice on how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Why did Noah have to punish and discipline the chickens on the ark? Because they were using foul language. Oh, <laughs> Two more. Did you know they had cars during Jesus' time? Oh, yeah. Uh, the Bible says the disciples were all of one accord. <laughs> and then what do donkeys send out near Christmas? Mule-tied greetings. <laughs> okay. All right, so we're actually going to start in a verse different from usual. 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5, and then we're going to uh, dig into 2 Kings 10. And I'm really excited about refreshing our memory on this principle. Thank you. Um, because it was revolutionary for me to understand how discipline works, the protection of God, etc., etc. Because I think a lot of times, because there's a lack of knowledge of God and His character and how He works, we blame Him for a lot of stuff. And um, so here in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5, we see a picture of what happens behind the scenes. But the first thing I want to say before we continue on, because now we're looking at judgment. Judgment's here. Uh, we've been going all through 1 Kings. We're halfway through 2 Kings. And we've got a situation where the cup of iniquity is full. And the first place cup of iniquity uh, was used is in, uh, I believe it was Genesis chapter 15, where the Lord was telling Abraham that the cup of iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. So, God takes no pleasure in destruction. He takes no pleasure in death. And He takes no pleasure uh, in judgments. Uh, it's important to understand that once there's a decree of anathema, and what anathema means, I put it up here, is one devoted to destruction. That's literally what it means in the Greek. So, once something is devoted to destruction, all protection is removed. Okay? And then God will deliver that person over to the enemy who has jurisdiction of death and destruction. Now, anathema is a little bit different from what we're reading in 1 Corinthians, but I want you guys to know that because it says uh, that in Galatians chapter 1, Paul said, If I or any man, any angel, preaches any gospel other than the one you heard, let that person be accursed. That word accursed is anathema. And so devoted to destruction. What we're going to read here, there's still an opportunity for repentance. Okay? So here in 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5, uh, now the context again is a man is sleeping with his stepmom. And Paul's like, you know, what are y'all doing? Y'all should be grieving instead of having a good time there. And then it says in verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan 
for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the word deliver is P-A-R-A-D-I-D-O-M-I. And it means, quote, to deliver over or up to the power of someone. Another definition is to hand over or to convey something to someone, particularly a right or an authority. It's the idea of delivering over someone to the power or authority of another. So in this instance, a man is being delivered over to the authority of Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now this is good news because what it means is there is no death, there is no destruction in God. So when it's time for judgment of this level, either to cause someone to repent or if they're anathema, they have to be handed over to the one that has power over death because the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Satan, according to John 10.10, is the one that comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus came to give abundant life. So you either take him at his word and you believe that he does not kill, steal, and destroy or you malign his character attributing those things to him. It doesn't mean that the enemy can just willy-nilly destroy and you know bring death and steal from whomever he chooses. There's a decree that goes forth. However, there's also the, uh, the idea that people through their choices open the door to death, destruction, and theft. Okay, so to me there's like probably more that goes on, but there's two uh, for sure precipitators. Does that make sense? And so one is the decree, one is people's choice. Which really, if you think about it, the decree comes because of people's choices as well. Okay, so there's no death, there's no evil in God. He has authority over all things, which is why at his decree, someone can be destroyed. But the execution of that decree is in the evil one or the destroyer. It's like, I, you know, I don't even know if they have citizens arrest anymore. Do you guys know? I think it's on there. I don't know if anybody ever does ever it. Ever does it? Well, the authority, right, is in the uniform, number one training, but the uniform and the weapon that police carry, but they cannot just arrest anybody willy-nilly. They have to have an arrest warrant, or you're on the side of the road driving drunk, they can make a discretionary decision to go ahead and put you in jail for the safety of the community, but your final sentence is the judge, which then the jailers come and take that person into what? Custody. So that's what we're talking about here. The enemy will take into custody people that choose to not repent or that the Lord decrees are anathema. Now Jehu, back to him because he's now the king. He's the one that is anointed and appointed to destroy Ahab's family. But here's the deal. I would never want that call. Because what you typically see in the Bible, there's a pattern. Sorry, I'm distracted because Doreen reading my sermon. <laughs> so you're going word over word over word. It's cracking me up. Okay. Anyway, the heart of David is to leave that into the hands of God, right? 
the pattern that we see in the Bible is whenever a nation or a person is handed the assignment to destroy someone, they actually end up being destroyed or they get a big head and they start just killing everybody. So for people that are like, um, you guys, I was thinking uh, back in the corner because I want to do, are you eating with us today? And by the way, I want to invite you, um, my treat, but uh, anyway, um, so I was thinking about us doing like a, a reel for the hub where you've got the different church people. So you have the ones that are like, Rah! you know, and I thought about getting a butter knife and holding it up. You've got the others like, just give me a hug, you know. Um, is that in the Word? I mean, there's just like you know, all these different types of Christians. And so for people that are more of that warrior, that lion type, you need to be careful. Because we'll be throwing around judgments and discipline all over the place, right? The other side is you can't be hugging everybody like that idiot that got on I don't know if it was Instagram or TikTok that she just wants to give Putin a hug. And then if she was his mom, you know, she would have raised him up different. I'm like, oh my God, you are so out of touch with what's going on. So you have both sides. If you're of the line of a judger, um, I would be very careful because we want to have the heart of David. What attracted God to David was his heart. And if you think about it, where it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord is looking for those that will heap uh, coals of conviction through kindness on people's heads. Now, that was displayed, like we talked about, where Elisha fed and they held like basically a party for the Syrians and it worked temporarily. Uh, but their response to that is not on your shoulders, it's on theirs. If they refuse to repent, then God will take care of business. But there's also the other side where sometimes you have to get a whip. And I you know was, what I mean? Um, when I, also, when I looked at this, um, oh, I, I know somebody and uh, their husband had got into some heavy drugs. And as they were told, you know, as the spouse, if they throw up, let them lay there in it. Don't wash their clothes for them. Don't clean up after them. Basically, let them suffer their own consequences mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. Because and if you go and you do for them, and you do for them, and you do for them, then that delays those consequences. So, you know, I agree. Yeah, yeah. I see that even as it is important for somebody to have consequences. Absolutely. And the repentance is what deals with the consequences. Right. Now, sometimes, so like, I remember, you know, back in the early days, you, know, you reap what you sow. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like this, oh, you reap what you sow. Uh, which the context of that was actually to not get weary and well-doing. But then it did go on into um, that God will not be mocked either, mm -hmm. right? So there's, there's the both sides of that. However, one thing the Lord told me, is he said there is a place in Christ where when you repent, the consequences, you don't have to worry about those consequences. However, there are situations where rep repetitive decisions, that even if God redeems it, you've still either lost time, maybe a lost marriage, maybe you lost time with a kid because you refused to you know, apologize, whatever it is. Sometimes there are natural consequences, mm -hmm. but when it comes to the enemy being allowed to attack you or you know any disciplinary action that might come, those can be erased in a second. 
Because how can a judge give a decree of judgment if there is no crime? See, that's what the blood of Jesus does. Mm -hmm. Once you confess, it's all erased. The effects down here, though, can sometimes continue because people usually get hurt in our decisions. No. Does that make sense? I think so. But, I, you know, I see that as when they turn them over. They turned them over to save them mm -hmm. and, and not just kind of try to erase all their consequences right. for them. That's important. It's really important. Yeah. Um, well, it's kind of like, you know, a lot of people when we had debt, you know, it's like, oh, we'll just pray and God can pay that all off for you. He will. But the process of learning not mm -hmm. only put in your head to not ever do that again, but it also showed his processes and how he works where the wisdom can be gleaned from that mm -hmm. uh, more than if he would have just sent us a check in the mail. You know what I mean? So, uh, which he did that plenty of times, but still, uh, consequences can sometimes be great teachers. Uh, let's see. Okay, so again, David refused to remove Saul and genuinely grieved when Saul and Jonathan were killed. So that was a representation of the heart of God. Even at the end where he says, depart from me, I don't know you. I don't think he's going to be doing it with anger. I think Father's going to be weeping. That's one reason the tears are going to have to be washed away. Uh, so those who were used to carry out the judgments of God often were then destroyed themselves. Uh, not because they did the judgment execution, but because of the heart condition behind it. So that's really, really important. And then also, we've talked a lot about you know Matthew 18. The steps to cause a brother, to like to go to a brother or sister, to encourage them to repent. You know, first you go by yourself, then you take two or three witnesses. Then if they won't listen, you go to the ecclesia and you explain to them what's going on. And then you treat them as if they're lost because Jesus will leave the 99 to go after, or leave the 100 to go after that one or the 99. However, um, when you do that, you cannot have vengeance or anger in your heart or the very decree of judgment will come back onto you. So you want to be very careful because right after that Jesus described or gave the parable of the unforgiving servant which is a warning to make sure that any judgment delivered uh, is from a heart of forgiveness not unforgiveness and a heart of love. Okay, so with all of that being said, we can see that executing judgment, the heart condition, is very, very important. All right, so now we're going to go back into 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And uh, now remember, the prophetic word was that um, all of Ahab's descendants would be wiped off the face of the earth. And because Israel and Judah intermarried, now that judgment on that line is going to have to eventually come into the line of uh, the kings of Judah. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city, to the elders, <coughs> and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons, select the best and fittest, of your master's sons and let and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before them. How then can we stand? Okay, so here's what he's saying. Jehu's saying, I'm king now. Eliminate any competition. The elders, their job was to guard 
the sons of Ahab. And when they saw that Jehu's already taking care of two kings, they were uh, uh, scared, and they knew that they had better do what he asked, or they would, would then be killed. So in verse uh, 5, So he who was over the palace and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu, saying, We're your servants. We'll do everything you tell us to do. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote to them a second letter, saying, If you are on my side, and if you are ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow this time. Now the king's sons, seventy persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, seventy persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jezreel. When the messenger came and told them they had brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. Now, these were probably young too. But they weren't adults. Some of them might have been close to being adults or maybe teenagers, early 20s, but they were children. You cannot tell me God wanted the heads of children. So the judgment has been handed over to Jehu. So who, under whose influence is he under? You see what I mean? Now, back then, pre-Jesus, pre-blood, the only way to deal with sinful family lines and things like that was death. I mean, there was really, I mean, it's a very yeah. brutal reality, but there was nothing to stop it. God promised there would not be another flood like in Noah's day. Well, they, so, they kept going, right, until every, every thought and intent of man's heart mm -hmm. was wicked and evil. There were only, what, eight people that that was not the case because they weren't, um, corrupted by the blood of angels. So now you got situations where they have to be cut out or it will spread and then the judgment will have to be more and more people. So God did not say chop off the heads of all these children, but Jehu was appointed to carry out the judgment that was spoken by the prophet. Therefore, if the enemy is the one who kills, steals, and de destroys, then Jehu has come under that and he's now wiping out this line. But we also see that God at different points says the enemy, go and kill everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then he punished, you know, the commander that took the spoils and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And every time that Israel did not do that, mm -hmm. they suffered. Yep. Uh, you know, because it was uh, like a poison on the inside. It was. Festered. So, you know, I don't know. It had, they, the line had to be destroyed it did. Uh, because it would have just spread among the people, which is sad. But that's why, like, you know, if a kid was rebellious against his parents or her parents, they were killed. Um, adulterers were killed. Uh, murderers, if they were proven guilty, they were killed. Um, so capital punishment was definitely a, a necessary thing back then. But if you've ever watched the stoning of Sarah, it's very disturbing and very brutal. So I can't imagine the brutality that they lived in back well, then. Even, but even like the English, you know, mm -hmm. we have a lot of history on that. And the thing is, the 70, it's not, wasn't the 70, but these peop, these men, the guardians, they were pawns at yep. this point. 
really. Yep. Because they were using those 70 sons to... Gain favor. Gain favor. Mm -hmm. They were in charge of their the city. Mm -hmm. They were in charge of the weapons. Yep. The chariots, all the, you know, basically the army. They were in command mm -hmm. using the 70. Yep. Yep. That's true. Yeah, they were definitely opportunistic yeah. and wanted to maintain their power as well as not die. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, now, he became king in 841 B.C. through this bloody coup that he did. Uh, there has been, or had been, an undercurrent of resistance for years because of the Omride policies of Ahab and uh, Jezebel. After Ahab's death, Jezebel was actually ruling um, through her sons, Ahaziah and Joram, which, of course, he's already taking care of them. Also, Bell worship was continued to give equal status to Yahweh even post-Elijah. So after he wiped out all those priests and prophets, uh, they're still worshiping him <clears throat> at the hands of Jezebel. Okay, now on top of this, Israel was experiencing a steady deterioration of status against indigenous Canaanite uh, portion of the population, specifically the Arameans or Syria of Damascus, and we've, we've read about them a lot. Then later from the Assyrians, which uh, the Syrians are still in place today, the Assyrians is modern-day Iraq, okay? Uh, and so they, you know, that's, that's the, the region. But it would be the Assyrians that would be the downfall for both Syria and Israel and several other nations. And, um, and so they need more and more funds to fight these enemies. And uh, so when the prophet anointed Jehu as king, he got to Jezreel as fast as he could because he didn't want news to reach and then there'd be a lot of fighting and a lot of war. So Jehu and his successors, they are the Nimshi dynasty. Uh, and they didn't uh, use Jezreel as a secondary royal residence. So that's why Jezebel was there. So you had Samaria, which was a primary royal residence. And then you had Jezreel, which was uh, Jezreel, which was the second. Okay, so now he's got to take the city of Samaria. But, like you said, he used fear and intimidation to get the elders of Samaria to do his dirty work. Okay. Which, you know, that's any military strategist is going to try to get other people to do their dirty work. All right. Uh, let's see here. Um, verse 9. Then in the morning he went out, he stood, and he said to all the people, You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him, but who struck down all these? Know then that there shall fall uh, to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord has spoken concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel, all his great men, his close friends, his priests, until he left none remaining. Okay, so now we've got the situation with Judah and Israel being intermarried. Uh, so in verse 12 it says, He set out and he went to Samaria and on the way, when he was at Bethaked of the shepherds, Jehu met with met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? And they said, We are relatives of Ahaziah, and we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. Okay, so now we've got relatives of the king of Judah that Jehu has already killed. 
he said, take them alive. So they took them alive, and then they slaughtered them at the pit of Beth Aked, 42 persons, and he spared none of them. Wow. So again, the word of the Lord is sure. The entire line, and we're going to see, it gets even crazier as we go. It's really sad. And we're watching the deterioration of a nation. You can, actually two nations, but you it's all the same. If you study the history of the deterioration of nations, it's, it's the same pattern. America is actually in that cycle. It's, it's a, a, going to take a God effort to pull her out. It's not impossible, but we, he, all you have to do is say the fall of the Roman Empire, the Aztecs, the Incas. It's always the same thing. You've got wicked rulers. You've got too much money, too much free time. You've got paganism and debauchery. You've got people that are lazy and not devoted to their families and taking care of their families, or they're so uh, depraved that nothing's getting taken care of. You also have a lot of slaves or slavery or cheap workforce. You have an overrun in the country of foreigners, either through conquest or open borders. I mean, it's on and on and on. And so we're seeing this in this uh, story of these two nations, and we're also seeing it in our own country. Okay, now, like any good ruler back in the day, he's got to have a religious plan. You can't just wipe out you know, the leaders. You now got to have God backing you up. So in verse 15, when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of uh, Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said, Is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered, It is. So Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand. And Jehu took him up with him into the chariot. And he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he made him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had wiped them out according to the word of the Lord they spoke to Elijah. Okay, now this is an interesting uh, exchange here. Let me, I was like, who the heck are the Rechabs or Rechabs or whatever? And who the heck is this guy? Okay, so before, this is from the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary. Before Jehu actually entered Samaria, while he was on his way there, he encountered Je, Je, uh, Jon, Jonadab. I thought it was a little bit different here, huh? Jehonadab, I think, is in the, the uh, English standard. Anyway, he was a leader of the Rechabites, a clan which faithfully adhered to an archaic form of Yahwistic belief. Centuries after the settlement of Israel and Palestine, the Rechabites still disdained to lead a sedentary agrarian style of life. Rather, they continued to pursue a semi-nomadic type of existence, living in tents rather than in houses, subsisting on stock farming uh, rather than tilling the soil, and stoutly refraining from alcoholic beverages. In all likelihood, they understood this particular sort of existence in the Promised Land to be a style of life uniquely suited to the Yahwistic faith, especially since they were thereby separated from such religious temptations of the agricultural life as bell worship and fertility cult. Since the Rechabites were thus a group particularly responsive to the call of faithfulness to Yahweh, Jehu's immediate course of action is easily understandable. He needed them to join him in his chariot in order to demonstrate his own zeal for Yahweh. 
by having the leader of the Rechabites join him. Jehu was able to demonstrate to the populace his partisanship toward the national Israelite and ancient Yahwistic traditions of Israel in opposition to the on-ride policy of accommodation to Canaanite ways. So these sound like the Essenes back in Jesus' time that had the Dead Sea Scrolls and they lived. I think um, John the Baptist was kind of like they thought he was an Essene, although I personally don't think he was, but he was very close to their lifestyle. Uh, so very pure fundamentalist, I guess you could call them. Um, I am not sure I agree that they needed to continue to dwell in tents because the promised land meant that they would live in houses they didn't build and till land that they did not plant. But we see that they were almost like monks, like a monastery mm -hmm. society that was separate and apart. And so he just needed their endorsement like any good political and military leader. Okay, so in verse 18, Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Bel a little, but Jehu will serve him much. What? Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Bel and all his worshipers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Bel. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Bel. So Jehu uh, ordered... Um, uh, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came. So there was not a man left who did not come and they entered the house of Baal. And the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to them, Who was in charge of the wardrobe? Bring out the vestments of all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for him, for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord among you here, but only the worshipers of Baal. And they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now I'm sure you guys know what's coming. So he basically stationed eight men outside to guard. He said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. Okay? So now he's going to get rid of them all. <clears throat> Verse 25, So as soon as he made... An end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard, to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went to the inner room of the house of Bel. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Bel and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Bel and demolished the house of Bel and made it a latrine to this day. So he didn't do the offering inside the Bel temple. He did an offering to the Lord, and then once he was done with that, he went and killed all of the, the priests. So it, it seems like there were still quite a bit left after Elijah's work, or maybe they just reproduced and got more in and more trained with Jezebel um, running you know, things, but a latrine. So that's kind of interesting. You know, it's like you start off as Ahab, king of Israel, you marry uh, some hussy from, I don't remember where she's from, and then... You, you know, propagate idolatry and you get this whole war between God and you, I would not want to be on the wrong side of an argument with God. You know what I mean? And so now, just like he said, like we talked about last week, he is faithful even when we're not. And so once his word goes out, that's it. So you have this great dynasty and it comes to an end as being a latrine. Hmm. It's kind of like 
me and Mike were talking. You know, here you've got, and first of all, let me just put this out there. The fact that the slap that was heard around the world is top news. You have a war in Ukraine, which reports have come out that they're raping women, they're killing children, they're, they're brutal. Uh, during World War II, whenever they went into Berlin, you know, the Western forces are coming in, the Eastern forces are coming in, the generals told the Russian soldiers, just do whatever you want. They were raping women and killing uh, babies, children, pregnant women, ripping the babies out of the womb. They were so crazed and demonically uh, influenced that they had to start shooting their own soldiers to get them to stop. They couldn't get them to quit. Now you got the people that think that people over there think the way we do, it's, it's pride. They don't think anything the way we do. They sacrificed 20 million of their own people fighting Hitler. That's why Putin is uh, friends with Israel. He's very anti uh, Nazism. So if he smells it at all, or he'll use it as an excuse to it, or a Jewish man. Anyway, so they're killing all these people, and everybody's talking about the slap that's heard around the world. Okay? But I was telling Mike, I said, well, here's what's interesting. You've got Will Smith, uh, the guy that owns the Dallas Cowboys. I don't remember his name. Jerry Jones. Jones. Um, so you got these guys at the height of their career. Jerry Jones has a kid that his wife didn't know about. They know exactly when that occurred. You've got Will Smith at the height of his career, and he acts like a fool and slaps some guy. You know what I mean? Uh, you got to deal with your junk. If you don't deal with your junk, at the height of your career, whatever it is, guess what happens? Why take you down when you're at the bottom? Right? You have to be at the height, and then all of a sudden you're hit at the knees, and you come tumbling down like an idiot. <laughs> the perfect time to deal with your stuff is when no one cares. No one is looking, right? Then you're prepared for when you're up there and you're before people and you have influence. And so it's the same thing. It's like here you could have been one of the greatest kings ever, but instead your wife's name is to this day used to describe certain people that have her characteristics. This is hundreds, you know, two millennia, almost three later and she's still a byword, you know? And then Ahab, you say Ahab, you got some pansy husband, right? So anyway, it just, don't be dumb. <laughs> just deal with your stuff, don't be stupid. Stay humble, stay teachable, you'll be all right. All right, so in verse uh, 28, thus Jehu wiped, Bel, uh, wiped out Bel from Israel. But here we go. Everything that he did is now negated. Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. Those darn golden calves. I mean, why couldn't someone just get rid of them? It's ridiculous. So he got rid of Bel, but the golden calves are what opened the door to all the other crap. That was the origin story. That was the very thing that started all this stuff. A lot of Christians live their lives just dealing with symptoms. You've got to go to the story. You've got to go to the origin, where it started. So here he is, worshiping these darn calves. 
And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. So, again, these calves, I don't know what the heck is up with those, but I wanted to read this from the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary. With this bloodbath, the Amri dynasty, after not even 40 years in power, ceased to exist. With the seizure of the throne, Jehu established another dynasty, one that held to the throne for nearly a full century. The royal families of Omri and of Jehu were the only ones during the history of the northern kingdom that succeeded in establishing actual dynasties. In all the other cases, duration of rule did not extend beyond that of a king and his son. I also learned, when I was researching Jehu, after he established his rule, he had to pay uh, homage, is it homage or homage, 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 to Shalmaneser III, king of Assyria. Now this is not mentioned in the Bible, but it's mentioned in the black obelisk of Shalmaneser, discovered by Englishman Sir Henry Layard in Selah, uh, Iraq, in 1946. There's a picture of Jehu on his hands and knees, without an outer garment, in humiliation, humiliation delivering tri tribute from three Israelite emissaries. This is the only known surviving likeness of Jehu, and it's a picture of what will come to Israel because of her idolatry. Now, Jehu was not there personally, I don't believe, delivering the tribute. Normally they sent emissaries, but when they would uh, carve out these uh, you know, pictures on these obelisks, even if the king wasn't there, they would put the king in there in humiliation as a picture of that king's authority and dominion over the tribute king. Okay? Now, he might have been there, but I'm not sure that he was. Okay. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazel defeated them throughout the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward. All the land of Gilead, the Gadites, and the Rubenites, and the Manasites from whatever which is a valley of the Arnon, which that is Gilead and Bashan. Which Bashan, now, isn't that where the the mountains are, huh? Yep. The, uh, yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, GR. It's very evil. Like, we know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, now, the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 uh, years. So God is faithful, even when we're not. And uh, so again, even though judgment has come on the house of Ahab, judgment is coming on the house of Israel. And um, they'll, they'll end up not even being a nation. Well, I think it's interesting, too, just as a side note, that I think we always think that the golden calves was Baal worship. Mm -mm. Yeah, I well, mean, yeah. You know, we've heard sermons, and it's, you know, and, they, well, and Bell God is a bull God, so I can right. see how they would tie that to him. But um, you know, right here, if he destroyed Bell worship, but he, but the golden calves were left. Yep. They weren't synonymous with each other. No, they other. weren't. No, and again, I think it goes all the way back to when they came out of Egypt. Yes. So when Jeroboam's like, well, we need some type of religion, we need some type of visual, you know, he decide to make two of them. I mean, it's so aggravating. But here's the deal. If you want to know what type of spirit Jehu was of, it was religious. 
If you've ever met a truly religious person, there's no empathy. They're cold, they're stern, they're severe. Have y'all ever met like just mm -hmm. uncompromising? You cannot reason with them. Um, like when you're around them, it's like a nice block. Like yeah. there's there's no love whatsoever. And of course back then, you know, he had a mission. He had to get rid of the line according to the word of the Lord. But that's who he reminds me of. So because of that, he would of course have to have something to worship. There would have to be some religious structure. And not only that, I bet he didn't want the people going to Judah either to worship at the temple. So to me, if you look at Jehu and his heart, he's a very, very religious person. Well, and I religious people always have to have their idols because people that are truly religious, the ones I'm talking about, not in a good way, don't worship God. Right? So they have to have some type of idolatry, whether it's right. the law, whether it's themselves, whatever it is. To me, people that are religious at that level, that have like the two calves and all that, they're idolaters just as much as the Pharisees were. Well, and I see, I think it's interesting on this, where he was paying tribute to... Um, Shalmaneser? Yeah. You know, God could remove that uh -huh. where he didn't have to. But a God, I think, will also humble somebody which tells me that probably he had, he was a little bit full of himself. Well, yes, he was, I bet. But the other fact is he didn't get rid of the calves, right? Mm -hmm. But the judgment against Israel had already been spoken. Right. So it was just, it was a matter of time before it was well, carried and, out. But we know that he he can use anybody. He used Nebuchadnezzar to mm. humble. A donkey. Know, yeah, use the donkey. So, you know, he could have used Jehu. But I think, you know, you still want to be able to try to humble somebody or to, you know, give them a chance to come out from whatever mm -hmm. that stiff-necked, yeah. you know, type thing. But in this case, you know, I think he picked the person that he knew was going to go in there and, well, and, uh, and take, care of business. That, take care of business. Well, and you notice that their land mass is starting to diminish, right? Okay. Now... A lot of people say, well, that's the judgment of the Lord. Sometimes I think, and I, and I want to study this out, because sometimes I think the judgments of the Lord are not necessarily decrees as much as He is saying the consequences of what you're doing will be this. Mm -hmm. uh, like in uh, the garden where He said, you know, basically because of what you've done, the land is cursed. That was not a decree. He was telling Adam, because you did this, these are going to be the consequences. Mm -hmm. He's not decreeing anything out of nothing. He's just saying, here you go. This is, this is what life is going to look now. So when you go to look at, like, um, America, our land mass is being diminished. I don't know if you guys know this, by the run of our borders. Okay, so you've got this situation with our borders. You've got this situation with the donkey that's in office. You've got this situation with what's going on, right? And you can say, well, that's the judgment of the Lord. No, it's not. It's choices. Mm -hmm. You will know the judgment when you see it. Okay? So that's what is so striking to me. It's not... Now, the judgment against Ahab was a judgment because they could have kept going on and on and on. Mm -hmm. So when the Lord said the entire line is going to be wiped out, remember, after Ahab repented, he accepted his repentance. But then it's like, okay, I'm going to have to wipe everything out because you're still wicked. You're still evil. So 
when you look at what's going on, a lot of what is happening to their land and all of these enemies around them is not necessarily so much God stirring up trouble, although you can maybe attribute as part of his decree, it's more the consequences. Because they're seeing they're weakening as a nation. And it's a guarantee that any family, any state, any city, any country that's weakening, there are wolves just waiting to take it. So that's why you have to be smart, right? That's why you have to be very careful in how you live because there's always wolves. I mean, I think about that dream Mike had of trying to change the light that had gone out and how he's constantly having to go back and forth and check for holes in the fence because the wolves are just right there trying to get in. I remember the nature of a wolf is fascinating. In tribal times in Britannia, which later became you know Great Britain or England, but um, in, uh, I think her name was Bodicea. She was the queen. She was the first tribal ruler of uh, uh, England or Britannia during that time that took on the Romans and won. Uh, so she had to be, you know, bad A, you know what I'm saying? But anyway, um, so when you look back at those times, you know, they'd live in the huts with the thatch roofs. And if a wolf wanted you, they would get on that wolf, uh, roof and they would dig, 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 dig until they could get in there and get you. So that's, that's the nature of a wolf, and we cannot be naive. Mm -hmm. If you look at Paul, he wept when he left uh, uh, Ephesus because he knew that he would never see them again. So he leaves Ephesus, and what was he weeping about? I'm sure he was emotional. He loved the people of Ephesus, but he wept because he said, when I'm gone, the wolves are going to show up. And he was telling the elders, you got to watch the wolves. You cannot. Your job is to guard the flock because when the apostle's gone, the wolves show up. And that's why we've had so many wolves in the church because the apostolic office was removed from uh, church life. Pastors who are supposed to be governmental, but they're more like babysitters, instead took over and then all the wolves started showing up. It's amazing. It's amazing. So, you know, how do you deal with the wolf? You kick it. It's ribs. You tell it to go away or you, sh you kill it. You know what I mean? Now, I'm not saying kill people. I'm just saying you have to be ruthless in how you deal with wolves. And too many times Christians are being compassionate where there should not be any compassion because your compassion toward a wolf that refuses to repent is actually no compassion to the flock that that wolf will go in and ravage. And we've seen it happen, haven't we? So it's amazing. You get a wolf in there, and it's amazing how leaders will try to convince that wolf to quit being a wolf when it's its very nature, mm -hmm. and the people that are trying to warn them of the wolf are bad. It's amazing how that happens. So be very careful in recognizing and discernment. Well, and this morning I was thinking, I, I, I forgot now I was listening to something, and he just made the this, this statement that even God wouldn't, couldn't change the past, you know, anything. God, when he built the whole world, mm -hmm. and, you know, created Edna, he also created some natural laws. He did. Gravity. Yep. I mean, some things like that. So Law of what's flight. He, right. He can suspend those laws for a while if he chooses to. Like the sun mm -hmm. in the battle with yep. Joshua. Exactly. Yep. And, but, you know, so some of those warnings, I think, are not warnings, I'm going to do this to you. Right. I think they're warnings that 
because of the natural laws that are in place, yep. this will happen. Yeah. Like if you if I'm an officer and I'm talking to someone that's on the edge of a building and they don't see the danger, right. and I explain to them, okay, here's what's going to happen. Yes. If you take one step off that ledge, right. you're going to go to the ground and splat. You will cease to exist. Yeah. It ain't my fault that the person fell off the, you know, I wasn't decreeing exactly. that they're going to, you know, and then pushed them off. I'm letting them know of the consequences. Yes. You're absolutely right. And the good news is the other um, side of it is true. You execute laws of faith. You execute laws mm -hmm. of generosity. You execute the law of flight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You have good things that occur. But a lot of times people want to blame God mm -hmm. because he didn't suspend the natural laws. Mm -hmm. Basically, mm -hmm. oh yeah, God did this. Mm -hmm. God, you know, struck them dead with the lightning or, you know, whatever. Well, and if you're the idiot standing yeah. out in the middle of a thunderstorm yeah, in the field. Yeah, if you're up there <laughs> with your, your, your tent pole sticking in the air, you might get, get gone. But, so I see that too, that a lot of times they blame God mm -hmm. when God is warning them, mm -hmm. this is a natural consequence. That's what I think. And if you don't stop that, yep. this is what will happen. That's what I think, because kind of like going back to the beginning where you have choices. Yes. Your choices will eat, you're the sum total of your choices. Where the past can, you know, you can re recreate the past. God cannot erase the past, but you can bring it into your future. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a situation where you just keep making the same choices, you cannot be surprised mm -hmm. when you get the, what the you decided. And I think when people blame God or blame others or their past or whatever it is, they don't have to take personal responsibility right. for the mess that they're in. And of course there are people that have had things happen to them. Mm -hmm. But even that is a cop-out if you let it because... Joseph, the guy, man, he's like betrayed by his brothers. They wanted to kill him. He's a slave. He's falsely accused and imprisoned. He's forgotten about for two years. I mean, the list goes on and on. If anyone could have been bitter over what happened to him, it was him. But instead, he embraced what he was learning, right? Mm -hmm. And he, like people say, well, he was prideful. That's why all that happened. No. the re You cannot be prideful and be humble enough to submit to being under difficult circumstances. It's impossible. If you're prideful and difficult things happen to you, you will not respond the way Joseph did. He was a cocky teenager, for sure. But, and he, and he didn't have discretion, but from the moment he was made a slave, he put his hand to make everything he did better. That's humility. And so He's, he was able to overcome everything and become the second in command of Egypt. So it doesn't matter what ha has happened to you. You have a choice in what your future looks like. I, uh, I think it was Graham Cook. I was listening to something he was saying. And he just made one comment that really stuck with me. He said, what if God uses your difficult circumstances for you to learn one thing so you can go on? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He said, how many of us pray for that circumstances to go away right. without learning anything? Yep. And so, therefore, we're not promoted. Yeah. And I thought, ooh, ooh, yep. that's kind of we're like, yeah. Yeah. You either become bitter or better. And uh, it's interesting. And here's the thing with bitterness. It will hunt out weaknesses. So, like, if you're greedy, you're going to get more greedy. Mm -hmm. If you're angry, you'll get more angry. If you're depressed, you'll get more depressed. I mean, the list, it goes on and on and on. Because so, greed or bitterness, it corrupts everything, including what is already there that's wicked. 
So it'll just make it even worse, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a very, I mean, if you look at Satan, everything that he does is because of bitterness, mm -hmm. right? And he's getting worse and worse and worse. And like they say, he started a snake as a snake in the garden. He's a dragon by the end. Now, I see why they make that point. I have a little bit of some theological differences on that. But I will say that is a good word picture for what happens when people are prideful and bitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Deal with your stuff. Don't be Will Smith in the pursuit of slappiness. <laughs> you know? Don't be Fresh Prince. You know? I had to send that out. I thought that was too funny. All right. Well, Father, we... We do ask that you help us to be ruthless when it comes to the things that are in our heart that may try to pop up. Stuff, stuff Father, that we're not even aware of. Like I was discussing Friday, you know, getting up that early and just the anxiety that was triggered. Um, that was something I didn't even know was still a residue uh, from 2011, Father. I mean, there are just things that we're not aware of that we're blind to, that can later become hooks, later become things that trip us up. And you are so generous an opportunity for us to see them, to embrace the process of what you're trying to do. It's the epitome of Romans 8.28, that you may not be behind a lot of this stuff, but you are very good at taking what was for our destruction and turning it for our good in such a way is spectacular. And so, Father, we don't ever want to attribute to you things that are wicked, that are evil, that are full of death and destruction and thievery, because that's not in you. But, Father, we do understand that there are times where a decree of anathema or a decree of handing one over to the one that does have the power to still kill and destroy is necessary even for our own benefit. We're here this morning to tell you we never want to get to that place. We never want to have to break your heart to deliver us over to such things in order to either remove us so that we don't cause more damage or to try to get us to wake up and repent. We don't ever want to be in that position. So I ask, Father, that you whisper and you shout, that you gently tap and you push, that you send us everybody we need to hear, that you, you reveal to us those things that are in our hearts that could cause us problems, but on the other side, Father, we don't want to get so internally focused on any of those things that then we can't see who we are in Christ. So with that being said, we commit our development to you. You are a good dad. You're very trustworthy. You're never going to do anything to us to harm us in any way. Instead, you're willing to cut out what needs to be cut out. You're willing to encourage us and speak nice things to us when we're feeling down. You won't crush a bruised reed, but you will break our legs if we keep wondering. You're all of those things and more. And so I ask, Father, that you help us trust you completely with our development, that we don't have to go hunting for problems. You'll tell us. And so, Father, we commit that to you this morning. And we also pray for our nation. We are in that cycle where our decision in the valley of decision can go either way. And we know the decision is not with the sinners. They're doing what they do. But instead, it's with your ecclesia. It's with your people. Are we going to make the right decisions? That's where it's at. So, Father, I pray that the awakening power of your Holy Spirit go through your people and help us to understand what we've abdicated, 
what we've lost, what we need to take back, very concrete, genuine, tangible things that we must do and repent of and turn around and actively go after the marketplace. And so, Father, I ask that you help us do that before it's too late. And Father, this morning we want to give you our tithes and offerings. They are a pledge of loyalty to you. We give without any compulsion, manipulation, and with cheerfulness. Because we know, the Bible says, you will not abandon nor do without a cheerful giver. So we give to you as kings to a king. We ask that you receive our offering this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to update y'all on a couple benevolences.